Hello, welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me, should you wish to, on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. My guest today is renowned rock photographer Bob Gruen. He brings us Right Place, Right Time, his thrilling and action-packed memoir. Bob formed a close friendship with John and Yoko throughout the 1970s, taking some of the most famous and fascinating pictures of them at work and at play. Bob Gruen, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining us. We're here to talk about um, Right Place, Right Time, the life of a rock and roll photographer, your uh, your book. Uh, you say at the start of the book that you realised in about 1979 that you had a ton of stories uh, that you could tell. What inspired you, what led you to publishing and um, writing the book now? Well, actually, I've been wanting to write it for a long time. And I've been telling stories for a long time of people who have been saying, write a book. But writing is very different from telling. Uh, when you talk, you use words like er and um, and you pause and you can repeat yourself. And it's what I call verbal punctuation. But when you write, you have to use actual punctuation. <laughs> and uh, it's a lot harder to write than to talk. And uh, over the years, I've started projects with a number of different writers. But it was about a year and a half ago, actually, uh, my friend Sylvain Sylvain uh, wrote a book with a guy named Dave Thompson. Uh, actually, originally, uh, he's an English uh, writer, but he lives in America now. And he's a professional writer who's written over 200 books. And I uh, still suggested I talk to him, and I did. And actually, when I called him, he was writing Walter Lohr's book. And, uh, and then we talked together for a while. I had done a lot of interviews, and then I did interviews with him on the phone. And he kind of combined it all together into a flow. And it was the first time a writer had actually made it sound more like me. Uh, they always put a lot of themselves into it because that's, they're writing it. They're thinking it. Mm. Um, but in the past, a lot of writers have made me sound like Peter Falk and a bit more New York than I you know, <laughs> cared to be. I am a New Yorker, but I don't think I, I'm a character, you know. Mm. Uh, maybe I am. I don't know. Anyway, it didn't sound right for a long time. And then Dave put it together where it sounded pretty right. And then my wife and I edited it and, uh, and made all the words back into my words. And we made the book. And I'm very proud of it. Uh, We've gone over it a lot of times to get all the words right. It's, it's uh, like I say, writing is very different from talking. You know? uh, well, you should be very proud of it. It's a, it's a fantastic read. Um, uh, I just wanted to start off asking a little bit about your, your kind of inspirations around photography. You, you say in the book that in the, the kind of mid, even to the late 60s, the, the phrase rock photographer didn't really exist. But obviously that, that's something that changed quite quickly who and what were your early inspirations behind your interest in photography? Uh, well, my mom's hobby was photography. Well, one of her hobbies. My mom was an attorney and a very active woman. And uh, she liked to develop and print her own pictures. Uh, I think she learned from her uncle. And uh, when I was too little to uh, leave running around the house alone, but too big to go to sleep early, she took me in the darkroom with her and taught me how to develop and print pictures. Back when it was very hand done, we were developing... Uh, film in trays, lifting the film up and down and counting the seconds in the dark. And I just took to it immediately. And by the time when I was eight years old, my parents gave me my first camera, Brownie uh, Hawkeye. And I just started taking pictures of family, family pictures. And I kind of learned how to get a dysfunctional group of six people to look good for a 60th of a second. So it was good <laughs> training for rock and roll bands, you know. 
and actually, I, I really, I took to photography. I read a lot of photography magazines. There was a book called The Handbook of Photography that had a lot of factual details. Uh, my inspirations were um, Henry Cartier-Bresson, who always captured the decisive moment that captures the feelings of a picture. Uh, Man Ray, whose pictures were artworks, and he actually signed them in the 20s. Uh, and Ouija, uh, actually Arthur Fellig, known as Ouija, who was always in the right place at the right time. He did a lot of crime photography, uh, but he was always there at the right place. And so those were my original main inspirations for, um, to capture the right moment, to capture it in an artful way, and to uh, just show up at the right place at the right time, which is not something I can teach. It's just something you have to have intuition and just a, a right feeling, because it's not just I mean, a lot of places can be the right place at the right time if you do the right thing. Mm. Mm. You see, you have to turn the opportunities into, or you turn situations into opportunities. Mm. And I generally did that by trying to add something to the situation. Uh, not interfere with it, but add something. Maybe the publicist that hired me, I would take a picture of her with the band and give it to her. <laughs> um, or take a picture of the band, you know, and then get, show them the pictures, you know, uh, give them to them uh, to get to know them. How did that initial interest in photography turn into you going to photograph bands and shows, etc.? I spent some time in the book relating the early process because people are always talking to me, how did you get into it? Hmm. Uh, and uh, nowadays, people you know, have plans and they'll go to college to study actually rock photography classes in college. Uh, that was unheard of. For me, um, I, I didn't really have the grades to go to college or the inspiration. It seemed just like uh, more studies. And so my idea in the 60s was to turn on, tune in, and drop out, uh, which was a very common idea back then. And my idea to drop out was to live with a rock and roll band, uh, which I did. Uh, they were originally called the Justice League. Uh, two high school friends of mine and some kids we met in the city. And then they turned into the pop art for a little while and eventually became the Glitter House, uh, who were discovered by Bob Crew. And their niche on the internet is that they sang the vocals for the film Barbarella. That's my high school friend singing Barbarella. And that led to a record contract. And the record company, since I've been living with them, I've been taking pictures of them. That was my hobby. And they needed pictures for posters in front of nightclubs and stuff. Mm. And, uh, and they used my pictures and they liked them and hired me to start taking pictures of other bands. I think the first one was Tommy James and the Shondells uh, opening for Hubert Humphrey in a parking lot in Yonkers in the rain. Uh, the first paid gig I got. Um, and it just went up from there because actually I chatted up the band and I got a ride home with them that night. And that kind of became a pattern where I would get to know the band I was working with. Uh, I didn't become friends with all of them. I became friends with some of them, the ones that we got along with. You know, you know people often ask how I got to be friends with John Lennon. And it just kind of happens that if you like each other and you see each other often, you become friends. <laughs> it's not a mystery, you know. Um, mm. I mean, it always was a little mystery to me that I met more than one or two pretty famous people and got to know them. But it was always organic. Because uh, for me, like living with this band, I was taking some pictures, started to get to know some record companies. But then a friend of mine uh, said we had to go and see Ike and Tina Turner. That Tina Turner was amazing. I had never heard of her. She, uh, my friend Julie Rosen said, you got to see her. And so we went to see her and she was amazing. You know, just the most unique, fascinating, dancing, whirling, rock and roll um, extravaganza. It was a whole review, the horn players and you know uh, dancers. It's fantastic. And then they played in a small club a couple of days later. We went to see him. I took some pictures there. And at the end of the show, she dances off the stage as a flash of strobe lights. And I had a, only a few frames left in the camera. And I thought, well, I wonder what happened if I leave the camera open for a second and catch, I don't know, a few of those lights in a few different positions. 
And I didn't know where to focus or where she would be. And I just kind of pointed my camera towards her, took a one-second exposure, and it came out to be one of the best pictures I ever took in my life. Uh, where it captured five images of Tina jumping up, and, and uh, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days later, we went to see them again. They played a few shows around New York, so they were in New York for a week or so. And uh, we went to New Jersey to see them. It was a theater in the round, so as we came out, the dressing rooms were in trailers. And one of my friends saw Ike Turner and literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures, because I brought the pictures to show my friends. And I had no intention. I didn't know I could meet Ike Turner. And he stopped and he said, what pictures? And I showed it to him. And he said, oh, these are great pictures. I can show these to Tina. And he took me into the dressing room and Tina started liking my pictures. And he said, meet me in New York on Monday. And uh, he introduced me to the publicist. And that publicist took me to a party where I met a few more people. Uh, Jane Freeman, who became Patty Smith's manager, who was booking her rock club. And uh, Lenny Barron, a designer. And Billy Smith, who was a publicist. And he took me to a record company and talked to him to hire me for this new piano player from England who was opening for Leon Russell, a guy named Elton John. <laughs> and, uh, and so it just opened up one thing. It just started snowballing. Okay. Like after I met Argentina, I just started meeting people. And every time I met people, I met more people. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, t- talking of people, uh, obviously the, the focus of our conversation today, as relevant to, our, to my podcast, is going to be about John and Yoko. If you could just share with us what, your first impressions, both of John and of Yoko, were? Well, I first saw John and Yoko at the, uh, there's a benefit of the Apollo Theater uh, for the prisoners' families who were hurt in the Attica prison riot. And I heard that Aretha Franklin was going to be there. And uh, I had just been there the week before photographing Gladys Knight and the Pips. So when I got up there, the guards knew me from the week before. And I just kind of slipped in. I remember coming down the aisle and the announcer saying, ladies and gentlemen, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and the Plastic Ono Band. You know, we've seen reports in the newspapers that John and Yoko had moved to New York. And in fact, I've seen that they lived literally around the corner, half a block away from my house, just a few hundred feet, literally. Um, but we didn't, I didn't see them out in the street. People said they were riding bicycles. I hadn't seen them. You know, everybody in New York wanted to see John and Yoko, meet John and Yoko. And then I walked in and all of a sudden it was like, John and Yoko are in the same room. And it was like being hit by electricity, you know. And uh, I ran down to the front. I took a bunch of pictures. And then uh, they hung around, too, while Aretha Franklin came out and played. And then as they were leaving, they were sort of hanging around backstage waiting for their car. And a few people were taking little uh, Instamatic, uh, little box camera pictures. They used to have snapshot cameras. And I took a couple of pictures because they were just standing there, people taking their picture. And John kind of joked, as John was always joking, uh, he kind of joked, like, people are always taking pictures like this. And we never get to see them. What happens to all these pictures? And I spoke up and said, well, uh, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you my pictures. And he looked at me and said, you live around the corner? I said, yeah. He said, well, slip them under the door then. And it sounded so neighborly, you know, mm. and friendly. And so a couple of days later, I had some prints. I had some pretty good pictures. And I went by the house to drop them off. Uh, and I didn't just slip them under the door. I didn't ring the bell. I didn't want to bend the pictures or anything, you know. No. Uh, much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. I wasn't <laughs> expecting him to be their doorman, you know. Uh, he was just visiting. And, and they're a casual kind of couple. So he just was helping them out to open the door. And he asked if they were expecting me. And I said, no. And I said, I'll just leave this for them. And uh, years later, or well, months later, when we got to be friends, Yoko mentioned that that was uh, something that impressed them because nobody just gave them something and, and left. You know, everybody wanted to meet John and Yoko, and I did too. I was hoping they'd invite me in, but they didn't, so I left. It was about four months later, I was included in the first book of rock and roll photography, and the writer who was doing the biographies for the 12 writers in the book said he liked me and he liked my pictures, and, uh, and he was going to do an interview with John and Yoko the following week because uh, he was doing a story about the Elephant's Memory Band. 
that we're John and Yoko were using as a backup group, recording with them. And so he wanted me to come and take the pictures. And I remember the first night I went there, and uh, it, they were doing interviews in a hotel, so people didn't have come to the house. And I met the writer in the lobby, and he said that John and Yoko had just woken up, and they weren't expecting a photographer, and they were a little cranky. Uh, and I said, just wait 20 minutes, and they'd feel better, and they'd let me come up. And he said, they're going to let you take pictures and they'll like you and they'll like your pictures and you'll probably become friends with them and do album covers with them because that's the way they are. <laughs> and I clearly remember him saying that in the lobby because that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, wow. I said, I'll be in the bar. Let me know when you're ready. You know? <laughs> and um, 20 minutes later, he came down. He said, okay, they're ready. And we went upstairs and it was at the end of a long hall. And I remember walking down the hall and realized that I was absolutely trembling. <laughs> and uh, and I wouldn't be able to take pictures shaking like that. I was so nervous. I was going to meet John and Yoko. You know, it's just such, you know, I, I'm one of the few people who heard about Yoko before I heard about the Beatles. Mm. Uh, I was reading a magazine in the summer of 63, and there was a story about a Japanese artist, a woman who had a loft on Canal Street. You could go in the loft, it cost $5, and there was some large black bags, and you could get in the bag. You could get in the bag with somebody. In the bag, you could do your thing. Or you could just stand there in a the loft and wonder what was going on in the bags. And I thought that was the strangest thing I'd ever heard of called art. <laughs> and about uh, four or five years later, there was John Lennon with this Japanese woman getting in a black bag. And I thought, well, there's not two of those kind of artists around. So I was always very impressed. I mean, I like the Beatles like everybody does. Uh, mm. But when John got together with Yoko, it felt important. It felt that their message was very important. And the way they were doing it... Um, capturing news time by doing uh, ridiculous uh, conceptual stunts, like sending acorns to every leader of the world so the world could grow together in peace. You know, so many things, turning their honeymoon into a bed in for peace so that every newspaper would carry the word peace. You know, I was just so impressed with John and Yoko. So uh, the fact that I was actually going to meet them, I was trembling. And I stopped in the hallway and I took a breath and I said, this isn't going to work if I'm shaking. I just got to go in there. And I remember thinking, you know, as much as I really, really, really hope that I can work with John and Yoko, it's only going to work if they like what I do naturally. I, I can't do something else. And so I just relaxed and said, all right, do what I do and hope that they like it. And actually they did. Mm. Uh, much to my surprise, I took some really good pictures that night. After the interview, I asked if I could come to the recording session because the story was really more about the band than about John and Yoko. I remember Yoko said yes, but I'd have to wait till the end of the night. And uh, I took pictures of them recording all night. And at the end of the night, they did pose for a picture together. And that time, since they hadn't asked, and it was for a magazine, I, I printed up a couple of pictures for the magazine. And I left town with Ike and Tina Turner uh, for about two weeks. We ended up kind of by surprise in California, living in this, their Ike and Tina studio for a while. And about two weeks later, I came home just for two days to finish my taxes, I thought, and I ran into the drummer from the Elephant's Memory. He said, man, we've been trying to find you. You're the only one of those pictures of us together in the studio. Can you meet me at John and Yoko's house tomorrow? And that's the first time I went to their house. Mm. We sat around all afternoon talking and smoking and joking, and uh, they liked my pictures. I had other pictures I had taken that I showed them, and they liked those too. Uh, they decided to use one of the pictures of the Elephant's Memory group with John and Yoko for their album package for some time in New York City. And when I left, Yoko took me aside and said that uh, we really like you and your pictures and we want you to stay in touch with us. And sometimes we have guards that keep people away. So don't worry about them. Call back in an hour or two and ask for us and we'll be in touch with you. And, and, uh, and we want you to come by the studio more often. And, uh, and, and that's the way it's been. Uh, I remember her saying that we're not going to pay you for the pictures, but we'll give you access that your pictures can be, you know, special ones that are, you know, used 
uh, in all the magazines and packages around the world. Um, but that I would have to show them the pictures and discuss it with them and only use the pictures that they liked. Mm. And uh, some photographers might call that censorship. I called it cooperation. Uh, I like to work with an artist. I like to give them what they want. I like to know what they want. And so I can try to do that better. Uh, we almost always agreed on the pictures that we picked out. In fact, it was, I, I don't even remember any time that they disagreed. Mm. Um, but it was just an opera, and that's still the way I work today. I'm still friends with Yoko today. Tell us a little bit about the time that you had in the recording studio with John when he was making some time in New York City. That, that's, that's obviously quite a chaotic and kind of angry album. Were the sessions reflective of that? Uh, yes, in a sense. I wouldn't say so much angry except the night that Nixon was elected. But other than that, I was very happy. Uh, the Elements Memory were basically kind of a 50s-style uh, rhythm and blues bar band, uh, just a rollicking good time band with a saxophone player uh, and just always having a good time, drinking a lot. Uh, we actually refer to those sessions, uh, those of us who are still around, uh, as the tequila sessions uh, because we started drinking a lot of tequila and then drank more. And it got to the point where there was eight people in the studio and there was about 10 or 11 bottles of tequila that were empty at the end of the night. And then we would go out drinking. We'd go up to the home restaurant and have steaks and cognacs till dawn. And it just seemed normal. <laughs> it's hard to explain how people can work under those situations. It was a different time and a different place. And, uh, you know, we were smoking and there was uh, what they call dry goods to keep us awake and keep us drinking more. And, um, the, the, the most, mis you know, uh, it, it wasn't really a very conducive work, you know, place. John was in a, a kind of difficult situation having, you know, on his own, his first two albums were pretty successful, but then he was getting more and more politically angry with the war raging and the politics that were going on. Uh, and he felt he had to speak out. And um, the government didn't like that. So they started, the FBI started following him and the rest of us actually. It's amazing they couldn't find anything because there was so much going on that, you know, was I thought was pretty open, mm. but the FBI didn't find it. And, uh, and so John was pretty depressed. He, he, his, all his money was being held in escrow. When the Beatles broke up, three of them signed with Alan Klein and Paul didn't. And then a, a while later, the rest of the Beatles wanted to break that contract with Alan Klein. And to break the contract, they re required several years of litigation. Uh, and it finally ended. I remember John called me, I think it was around 75 or so. He called me to come to the plaza at like four o'clock in the morning. He called me up, are you busy? I said, no, it's four o'clock in the morning, you know. Even I sleep sometimes. And, uh, and he said, well, it's time. Come up to the plaza. And he was there with Alan Klein and about 20 lawyers and Yoko. And uh, each, the, the other Beatles weren't there, but they each had two or three lawyers. And they were signing the contract because in the whole time, in the whole couple of years, three or four years, uh, they didn't have any of their money. All their money was being held in escrow. It was kind of a joke sometimes when somebody would see John on the street and say, hey, are you John Lennon? And he goes, yeah, well, I wish I had his money. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't a joke. It was true. Mm. <laughs> and so they finally signed the contract. And it was an 87-page contract. And in those days, they didn't have word processors or the kind of printers we have now. So they had a room. Uh, they had a big room in the plaza with like 20 secretaries typing. Because every lawyer had to have a copy of the thing, and all copies had to be the same. And every time they changed a word, they had to retype the whole page. So they had 20 girls in there typing all these pages all night. 
And finally, he was done uh, 87 pages. And John said the original contract was one piece of paper with three paragraphs on it. And it took 87 pages to break that contract. But it was finally done. And then um, after that, uh, John was back with Yoko by that time. That was 76. He was in a better yeah. mood. But uh, in 72, 73, um, the government was trying to throw him out. He had no money. When they put out the Sometime in New York album, it, it, it got bad reviews. It was the first one that didn't go gold or, you know, sell popularly. Uh, when he played at Madison Square Garden, he was having a rollicking good time with the Elements Memory, playing rock and roll. But the audience, and, and John and Yoko was singing a couple of songs, and the audience wanted a Beatles song. <laughs> they wanted John Lennon the Beatles. And he played a couple that come together, which is a really uh, good one. But Cold Turkey is a pretty, you know, uh, chilling song. Uh, you know, they wanted the happy songs, and John wasn't doing that. He was doing politics at that time. Mm. So the concert was banned, and he got even more depressed. I mean, we had been drinking to begin with, but then after the reviews came out, he just really... Uh, and then when Nixon was elected, that really hit the skids. That was like the bottom line in November. He just fell into the drink. And Yoko, who, had, who was kind of used to bad reviews, she felt that bad reviews kind of reflected how intensely somebody felt about something. And she didn't mind if they felt bad. She just wanted them to feel. Mm. And so she wanted to keep working and keep going. And John was just so angry and so depressed, you know, that um, she basically said, get out of the house, go drink with your buddies and leave me alone. I got work to do. Mm. And uh, the whole time he was in LA with May, it wasn't a love romance. May was his secretary. And uh, he was calling Yoko and uh, asking if he could come back. And she said, no, you're drunk. I don't need it. <laughs> and Jim Keltner talks about it, how they called Yoko and said, Yoko, please take him. He's going crazy. You know, They had to tie him up some nights because when he would get really drunk, he would get destructive and, and really angry and, and violent. And they described having to tie him up in the car one night. And Yoko said, like, you, you boys wanted to go out drinking with him? Well, good luck. <laughs> no, I don't want to go out drinking with him. And it wasn't until he was publicly embarrassed in the newspapers, you know, with a cotex on his head at the Troubadour, uh, that he woke up and realized what was going on. He came back and sobered up. And from then on, he was a different person. And uh, it took about six or eight months before Yoko did take him back in uh, December of, what was that, 74, I guess. And then uh, I did a photo session with him in the spring, and he said that Yoko was pregnant. And then uh, they went on a healthier diet. Uh, I think it was just shortly after Sean was born that they, um, they had a flu for a couple of days and they were kind of sick. And afterwards, um, instead of going back to their normal diet, Dick Gregory, their friend, had suggested they go on a, a liquid diet, a fruit and vegetable diet. And so they went on a, a total liquid diet, anything that went through the juicer they could have, but no solid food for 40 days. And I saw him about 10 days into it, and he said he felt like he was tripping, like everything became so clear, and his mind was so sensitive, and his taste buds were coming alive, and his feeling, his senses, he was feeling great about it. And an expression of how smart John was um, to carry out the, because he was a very impulsive guy, he liked to do what he liked, you know, he liked pleasures. Um, but in order to stay uh, focused and not eat, he read books about food, and he read cookbooks. And he would read an elaborate recipe of, you know, some fantastic dish. And he would have this whole fantasy about a dish and then turn the page and do it again without having to go to the kitchen and actually do it, without actually eat it. He would go from one fantasy to another and just kept his mind not just occupied by food, but directed towards learning about food. And when I met him, uh, he didn't really know how to cook. He could make a cup of tea. He was English, you know, and he could put milk on cereal. 
or toast, you know, that was about it. Uh, and after the fast, he came out and he learned a lot about macrobiotic diet, which is a great diet with a big, long name, but the diet is actually very simple and it's basically uh, grains and uh, healthy foods and a balanced diet. And he started cooking. And I remember one time when I came by and he uh, baked a fish and he had some steamed vegetables and it was just a delicious meal. And it was such a, such a, a leap from, you know, this drunk guy who could make toast. And all of a sudden here was this father who was caring for his kid Mm. who could make these beautiful meals and, you know, was taking life seriously and staying sober every day. Uh, I think the biggest loss, you know, uh, when he died, he was about to do a world tour. Mm. Uh, in 1980, he was very excited that the new album was getting good reviews. He was more excited that Yoko was finally getting good reviews. Uh, I remember him saying, we had a long talk two days before he died. Uh, we had a talk in the studio. I'd gone by to take some new pictures because the album was jumping up the charts and they wanted some more pictures. And he was talking about going on a world tour. He was talking about what he had learned, raising Sean, about responsibility, about healthy diet, about sobriety, um, about responsibility to family. It was just a whole new person. He sums a lot of that up in the Playboy interviews with David Sheff. And David's book has just been re-released, I understand. Mm -hmm. And it's the best information. If you want to know anything about John Lennon, instead of listening to people like me or anybody else who knew him talk about him, you can read what John had to say in his mm -hmm. own words mm -hmm. in the Playboy interviews by David Sheff. And I recommend that to everybody because it was done just before he passed away. And people liked everything that he had put out in the early 70s when he was drunk and crazed and so on. But when he spent five years raising his son and spending time with his family and himself sober, the ideas he came up with that he was about to go around the world and talk about were just much more responsible, much more adult. And that's what the world lost. So if we could just go back a little bit, you mentioned John's kind of lower points when, when he and Yoko go their separate ways, mm. the, the lost weekend. Do you think he was happy with himself being with May at any point? Or do you think it really was just a, a temporary thing being apart from Yoko? It was very much a temporary thing. He was only physically apart. He literally was on the phone with her every day, sometimes several times. I mean, he cared for May. May was a good secretary, a very good companion. She did a very hard job, very well, taking care of John in his crazed state. But it wasn't a romance in the sense, uh, he listened to his interviews, he talks about Yoko. But, you know, he's not the first uh, executive to sleep with the secretary. <laughs> And, and it was, I mean, it's a good relationship. May's a great person. And she did, like I say, a very hard job very well and kept him, you know, going uh, when he could have really gone off the rails. Mm. And he did go off the rails. She just kind of kept it going in the right direction. <laughs> it wasn't exactly on the rails. I mean, his, he came back to Yoko and he was very happy with Yoko. I wouldn't say he was happy when he was out there drinking with the guys. He was carrying on. Mm. And actually, Yoko made a point because John made the rock and roll album. And... Uh, in the 80s, Yoko uh, remixed it because it was made in a very drunken state. Uh, and Yoko renamed it Men Love Avenue, which was the street where John grew up. But it's also a double meaning because if you listen to the album, it's all great old rock and roll songs. And they're all about, I'm just a lonely teenager, you know, without anybody, you know. And they're all just sad songs about not having the love of your life. Mm. And that's where he was at. And that's what rock and roll, you know, that's the kind of rock he grew up on. But he didn't want to stay there. And so when he finally got back to Yoko, he was very happy to stay home and be sober. 
in their lost weekend, he was spending a lot of time hanging out with Alice Cooper and Keith Moon and uh, Harry Nielsen. And that's a tough crowd to keep up with. And John was kind of the leader. You know? <laughs> um, and let me tell you, those guys can put away a lot of intoxicants. Let me wrap it up. In a, it wasn't just alcohol. Mm. Um, you know, so to, to break out of that was a, a kind of a big thing. Mm. Uh, and to learn, you know, the difference between that kind of life and a sober life. Mm. and the joys of a sober life when he retired as it were uh, you know after Sean's born um and he, he kind of removed himself from the public eye mostly what what kind of contact did you have with him after 1975 there's some wonderful pictures in the book that you take uh of Sean when Sean's a, a very very tiny baby um after mm. that point was he still someone obviously you were living your life and going off and, and, and traveling with bands, etc. Was he someone that you still stayed in touch with in that kind of 76 to 79 period? Uh, very much in touch with, but like many young parents, um, he was busy, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and he was on a kid's schedule. I mean, there was a couple of times I, I, I was, you know, I could call him up. He could call me up. Uh, I remember one night when Harry Nielsen was in town, John called me up. He had been sober for a year or so at that point. And he said, Harry's in town and we have to go out. And you know all the club owners, so meet me over at Ashley's. And when I got there, he had just left. Because when he would get to a club, within 20 minutes, he was so surrounded by people, he'd leave and go to another. So I missed him and I went uptown. They'd gone up the tracks and I got there. He had just left and I went to the next one and I missed him. <laughs> and it was Friday night and I went back home. And Sunday afternoon, he called me and uh, said he'd been out with Harry drinking all weekend and... Uh, he woke up near my house and wanted to come over and have some coffee before he went home. But, but I wasn't out with him that night. There was another night, I think October, where we did go out. He'd had dinner with some record execs and then we went downtown. Uh, but mostly uh, after that, after Sean was born, yeah, because that one wasn't when he was back with Yoko. When he was with Yoko, we didn't really go out much. I talked to him a lot. Mm. Uh, I do remember calling him up one night. Uh, somebody was in town that was playing at CBGB's or something. And... Uh, and he answered the phone and kind of whispering like, hold on a second. And he put the phone down and I heard him playing a lullaby on an acoustic guitar. And then he came back to the phone and he's still whispering. He says, I'm just putting the baby to sleep. And I thought he was in such a nice place. He's not coming out to a rock and roll club, you know, having drinks at CBGB's. You know? <laughs> and I just said, no, well, there's somebody in town, but you don't need to bother with that. I, I do remember. I mean, he, he wasn't completely um, isolated. One night Yoko called me and said, do you have a suit? <laughs> And um, actually, I do have a couple of suits. And, uh, and she took me uh, with a couple of other people. We went to see Mars Cunningham, her old friend, who was, uh, had a debut on Broadway, a big theater on Broadway. Mm. And uh, we went out that night, and James Taylor and Carly Simon were there. It was really fun. But, uh, and then one night, I remember I was nearby, so I just called up and said, what's up? Because sometimes I would just drop by, and uh, we'd just smoke and watch TV and talk and I'd show him my pictures. To, you know, he, I always carried a box of my pictures that were very current. And he would kind of catch up on what was going on. But, and that was enough for him. He didn't have to come out. Hmm. Oh, for your Beatles fans, I was actually there one night, um, just one night when I happened to stop by. And uh, it was in this early December, I think. Um, we were in the bedroom and we're watching TV. And this was while he was still under the deportation order. And all of a sudden, the doorbell rang. And in their building, the Dakota, the doorbell doesn't ring. Uh, unless somebody tells you it's going to ring. Uh, there's several layers of security downstairs. Nobody gets in the elevator without being led into the elevator. And uh, it was just unheard of 
that somebody could be at their apartment ringing the bell. The last time that happened, it was immigration officers trying to take them to the airport. Hmm. So they immediately got really paranoid and we were alone in the apartment. I was the only other person there. I think Sean was sleeping. And uh, I went over to answer the door and there's a double door. There's an inside door and outside door. And I opened the inside door and I heard somebody singing Christmas carols. And I called back and I said, oh, it's just kids from the building singing Christmas carols. Like, don't worry, you know. And I opened the door and it was Paul and Linda. And that was a surprise. It wasn't kids. Wow. And and they were singing, we wish you a Merry Christmas. And I said, oh, you don't mean me. Come on into the bedroom. And I brought them singing into the bedroom. And John and Yoko were thrilled to see him. It was a great surprise. Paul and Linda were in a good mood. John and Yoko were happy. Being English, of course, they made cups of tea. (laughs) And we sat around smoking and drinking tea. And the TV was always on. Uh, That was the thing about John, by the way, that um, he always had a TV on. From the first time I met him, he had the biggest TV I'd ever seen, a projection TV at that point in 72. And it was always on. And I hate watching TV and I find it very distracting. And at one point I said to him, do you always have to have the TV on? And we're talking here, you know, you're always hmm. looking at the TV. And he said, well, we could talk if the window is open, right? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, that's my window, but I see the world. And I was like, well, the world's kind of distracting. <laughs> but anyway, you know, Paul and Linda came in. They were talking mm. about uh, they had recently been denied entry into Japan because uh, Paul had been arrested for marijuana in Scotland and in, or in England and in Los Angeles. And, and they were describing how much they wanted to go to Japan and how uh, John and, and Paul were reminiscing that they had had such a good time as, uh, when they visited as the Beatles. And they, they really wanted to go back to Japan and being denied a visa uh, was very disappointing which was why it was a big surprise to me and John, you know, a few years later uh, when he got the visa and he went back to Japan with eight ounces of marijuana on top of his suitcase. He got 26 people in an entourage and it's got to be your suitcase. There isn't like a pink bag that doesn't belong to anybody or something, you know, (laughs) it was just such a surprise. And John said that as a Beatle, nobody ever opened their bags. They always had such special treatment in through the back door and out through the alleyway into the limo or whatever you know that they never ever expected their bags to be open it was just inconceivable but i just thought like put it on the bottom of the bag at least you know <laughs> like, but he just said it was just inconceivable it just didn't matter like nobody would ever open his bag so it was a really nice fun night uh, relations were cordial and, and friendly at least for that one night for, for that one night i don't i don't know what the newspapers say or the lawyers say they were like old school buddies who were really happy to see each other that's what i saw I mean, I really wish I could have taken some pictures, but it was such a friendly moment between two people, not two famous Beatles. You know what I mean? We were in Johnny Yoga's bedroom. This was very personal. Mm. And if they had said for a moment, pick up the Polaroid, let's get a picture of us, you know, or how about a picture of us together, I would have had a roll of film. But they didn't, and I didn't intrude. And that's Mm. part of the right time, right place. You got to know what to do. Exactly, exactly. So um, moving on, you, you mentioned it a little bit in a conversation previously. Um, if you go into 1980, what kind of changes in John had you seen by this point? You know, he's, obviously Sean's five at this point. He's recording Double Fantasy. You spoke about those sometime in New York City sessions previously. Mm. I imagine that these sessions were quite a different kind of world for them. How did John compare as a person from that guy that you met nine years ago? Uh, well, he was the same sense of humor. Right. <laughs> he was always cracking jokes, always keeping everybody in the room laughing, but quite a different person. There was no alcohol. 
uh, there was a healthy diet. We ate mostly sushi and uh, green tea. I remember actually in between when he first came back from Los Angeles and was finishing the Mind Games album and uh, um, the Walls and Bridges, particularly in the Elephant's Memory Sessions, like I said, there was a lot of tequila and beer. But in the uh, Walls and Bridges Sessions, the cooler held mostly soda and it was uh, almost uh, like a, it's a symbol. There was one beer. Like you came in hungover and you needed a beer, we got beer, but there was like one. It wasn't encouraged. There wasn't a case like at the Elvis memory. We probably had two or three cases of beer. It was a much more sober situation. And in 1980, I didn't see any beer and there was no alcohol and there was no smoking pot. It was a serious sober time and everybody there was serious and sober. And, uh, and that was completely different from the early days. Uh, but it was still very funny. It was always fun to be with John. He was very, charismatic and just always just every other sentence he would twist into a pun and sometimes it was like downright rude and he would he would be so spot on you know perceptive of who somebody was or what they're what they were trying to pull and he would make a comment about it that was almost insulting but he would twist it into a pun and everybody would laugh and it was just the truth instead of insulting <laughs> uh, and and you know it's funny like I didn't write any down. I don't remember any. Um, if you watch uh, the interviews that he's done, I didn't find him different backstage than on stage. He always talked pretty open and always funny. Uh, so the person I had seen on TV and in the Beatle movies is the person I met. He was very real. So my favorite picture of yours um is the picture that you took in 1980 and it's a picture of John and Yoko and they're stood by this giant guitar in the studio uh, yes. and 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 John has, has shoved Yoko up against the wall um, I, I recommend it I'm sure many people listening to this have seen it just tell us the story about that I think it's a wonderful funny and yet kind of quite revealing picture I think that was uh, maybe the day before he's wearing a leather jacket yeah that was Thursday night um, I guess uh, a few days before he passed. And uh, I went to the studio to show him some pictures and they asked me to take some more because the album was coming up and up the charts. And uh, we posed around the studio. I uh, specifically posed him in front of that guitar because uh, that guitar is an art exhibit that John made uh, earlier in the 70s uh, for the avant-garde festival, uh, a couple of, uh, I think in 71 or 72 there was a big, every year in New York, there's an avant-garde festival and John had that guitar fabricated for the art show, uh, but it was too big for them to get into their apartment to take it home. Uh, but the recording studio had a big freight elevator. So John loaned it to the record plant to display it there, but I knew it was his art. So when we were taking pictures around the studio, I asked him to stand in front of the guitar and we took a series of pictures of them just standing there with their arms around each other, looking at me with the guitar behind them. And then John kind of spontaneously pushed Yoko against the wall. And he said, take a picture like this. This is what everybody wants to see. And, and he was kind of right because that is the most popular picture from that evening. And it really shows their intimacy and their humor. And I like the fact that it's in front of his own giant guitar. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, and Yoko seems to be enjoying it. So uh, it has become a pretty popular picture. And they were back in the studio, you know, because Yoko was getting good reviews. And they wanted to capitalize on that. And they were doing the Walking on Thin Ice uh, new record, which was not on uh, Double Fantasy, mm. uh, because they wanted to get a single out. And John really liked the song a lot. 
And I remember him saying that the reviews were coming in and uh, they were calling his music M.O.R., but they were calling Yoko's music new and interesting and avant-garde. And, uh, and he was really happy that they weren't putting it down like they used to, that they liked it and they were, you know, thought it was interesting. And he said, they're calling my music M.O.R. And he said, that's okay because we're going down the middle of the road to the bank. <laughs> uh, so to kind of conclude our, our conversation, I wanted to go back a little bit in time and I wanted to talk about Yoko. You went on tour with Yoko to Japan in, yeah. ni- in 1974, a, a trip which, from what I gather from the book, led you to kind of fall in love with Japan uh, to a certain mm. extent. Um, if you could just share some memories about, first of all, how, that, how you got involved with that tour and just if you could just share some memories of what it was like to be with Yoko on her own. It was great. It was great. It was an amazing trip. Japan is an amazing country. Uh, it really opened my eyes to a, a civilization that respects art uh, and respects uh, is sensitive to feelings. I remember uh, I was laying in bed, actually. Uh, she called me the last minute. It was Saturday morning. She was going on Tuesday. And she said, do you want to come to Japan with us? And I was like, yeah. And I looked over at my wife, who was eight months pregnant, and said, I just had to talk it over. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get back to you. Uh, but my wife uh, was due. This was like the beginning of, I think we went August 1st or 2nd, something like that. We were going to be back by August 10th. My wife was due September 1st. She was always on time for everything she did. She was never early or late. And we just hoped and assumed that that was going to, that was going to happen. And so I, I stayed up for the next two days, getting things, a lot of pictures together. I was going to meet people in Japan. And then we went there. And I remember the first meal I got with Yoko was this thing called Sezai, which is like a giant, uh, I guess a snail or something like a, a small conch. Uh, but it came uh, on a tray filled with salt with little flames like it was this little shell that had washed up on the beach you know and, and it was just delicious and, and the flames to keep this the thing was in a shell full of sake with the fish inside and just everything was elaborate and every place you go has something that is more special and more different than anybody else hmm. and it, you just keep getting impressed all day and it's, that happened for the next 40 years every time i go to japan every place is just trying to outdo every other place and, and there's a whole sense of pride and uh, personal respect for things. Um, you know, the idea that when you go to a subway, there's a f- little flower next to the guy selling the tokens. Uh, because there's just a sensitivity. A-, a friend of mine from Japan was here in New York one time and walked into uh, a deli with me. And she just stopped in the door and looked around at the chaos of the shelves and the stuff and the people. And she just said, to- turned to me and said, there's no beauty here. And in Japan, there's beauty everywhere. And Yoko turned me on to that. Mm. And being her photographer, I got to spend more time with her rather than with the band. And, uh, you know, go to interviews and go around town. I actually went with her to visit her father, who was in the hospital. Her mother came and picked her up. And, uh, it's in my book. I have a really nice book that I made for Yoko on her 80th birthday about eight years ago uh, called See Here, Yoko. Because when she was 80, it was like, what do you give a woman who has everything? And it was like, I gave her a published, well, not, well you self-published a book of 40 years worth of pictures I had taken of her. Uh, she liked it so much, she asked us if we could publish it. And then luckily we actually got a deal and, and the book is out and available. But the Japanese tour, just, and I met the promoters and, uh, you know, the people from the record companies and the Japanese magazine people. And I really got along with them. Uh, a lot of Yoko's band, they would go up to the penthouse bar and get martinis in Manhattans and complain about being out of, not home. But they were mostly stu- studio musicians who were not 
really, you know, wanting to tour. They, they played in studios every day and went home to their families. Uh, but I was having a great time and I was going out drinking with the Japanese promoters every night. And it led to a whole career in Japan. Uh, one of the guys actually the next year, he came to New York and uh, on the train, I was playing them songs from New York, uh, New York Dolls and uh, I think uh, Susie Quattro. It was kind of early for any of the punk stuff, but um, it was 74. Mm-hmm. Yuya came to New York and he wanted to meet the New York Dolls and he actually offered them a deal to come and play uh, in Japan, and that's when I went back the second time, and that gave me enough experience that when the Bay City Rollers went, uh, they brought me along with them because I had been to Japan before, you know, and, mm. and I just kind of played on that and ended up going a couple of times with Kiss until finally at the end of, the like, 79, I went and got my own apartment there mm. and, and spent the better part of a year, 79 to 80, living in Tokyo. What was your relationship what's your relationship been like with with Yoko after we lost John? Um, did you maintain a friendship through the 80s and, and onwards? Oh, very much so. Very much so. If anything, our relationship got stronger. Mm. Uh, Yoko was a tower of strength uh, that was shaken to the core, but not broken. And she was a source of strength for all of the rest of us who were close to her. It was a very difficult time. As a vulnerable widow, she was being attacked on all sides. She had a lot of money and a lot of people who were going to help her with that money. Um, She ended up getting a guy who was helping her, and then she had a tough period trying to get rid of him (laughs) because it turned out he was trying to protect him for himself instead of her. Mm. And, And somehow I became a confidant and a close friend. It wasn't something I expected, but uh, there were many nights we spent several hours uh, just talking in the kitchen. And uh, it was a unique kind of very close friendship where we just discussed what was going on in life and how things were. And I, was, I just felt very blessed and lucky. And, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, we helped each other. You know, mm-hmm. it gave her someone to talk to and get things off her chest. She's, she, uh, you know, one of the last things John told me, actually, was to always listen to Yoko, that Yoko's always right. And, uh, and I found that to be true. She's got great advice. She really uh, is very savvy. She, uh, I don't know why people think she's somehow evil or they call her a witch or something. They think they control John. Uh, John did what he, John wanted to do. Yoko didn't control him. I mean, if you listen to his songs, he, he didn't, she didn't tell him to write that. Uh, he wrote that he loved Yoko and he listened to Yoko because uh, she was the other half of the sky, as he says in his song. When, when Noah, you know, he said, he told me about his uh, sailing trip to Bermuda. And John had described to me how when you're out on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean, there's a whole blue disk of the ocean and a whole blue disk of the sky. And you are in this little tiny dot in the middle of nowhere. And in the song, he says, when, when nowhere is the place to be, your spirit's guiding over me. Dear Yoko, you know, that's the way the relationship was. If you'll, in most of my pictures, they're touching each other or sitting on the same chair together, uh, not only mentally, but physically in touch. Mm. Uh, it was a very beautiful relationship. John once said that John and Yoko is one word. And, uh, and that's what he felt about it. And that's where, you know, I've learned, uh, I've never known Yoko to really be wrong. Well, Bob, I think that's uh, an excellent way to, to conclude. Um, thanks so okay. much. Thanks so much for, for giving us um, some of your time to talk about this book. Uh, we should also mention that this book is full of many other things outside of John and Yoko. Um, oh, yeah. We got, the, we got the Clash. We got the Sex Pistols. <laughs> all kinds of people. <laughs> Bob, thanks so much for your time.
Okay, thank you.